Those of more Antipodean uh, origin, of which there are a few, um, will feel this is exactly the right weather to celebrate Christmas in. It's just I've never done that, and we still struggle in this country to cope with Christmas without snow, even though it pretty much never snows. At Christmas, we still imagine there is a time of year to do these things, and as the, the nights draw in, and as the autumn sort of hits, and as it does get marginally colder at least, there is somewhere in the sort of um, UK consciousness a gut-level sense of, well, at least Christmas is coming. Christmas is a time for many people, maybe most people, to look forward to. Childhood memories, maybe. Maybe simply the tinsel and glitter of the picture book scenes, perhaps the things that we hope it will bring us, perhaps the things that we look forward to in terms of time with family, present buying, present giving, simply walking down Oxford Street with all the lights that are lit, some beautiful things to look forward to. And that sense of Christmas being a comforting time of year actually extends far beyond, if you like, the, the, the bits around the edges, the fripperies, the, uh, the simply the decorations. And it does take us right to the heart of the Christian faith. It's absolutely one of the things that Jesus is billed as bringing. He's described, even in this passage, as Emmanuel, God with us, the one who comes to bring God's love, God's care, God's companionship, God's friendship with us in the midst of the difficulties of life. He comes to comfort the disturbed, says the old saying. And certainly one of the things that we're going to be praying for Joshua as he grows up, that one of the things he will discover as he grows is that the love of God in Jesus isn't somehow a long way away, that he has to reach through hard effort, through focused prayer, through sacrificial giving, but actually that the gift of God's love is closer to him than breathing as Paul the Apostle writes, that God's love is for him before he is ever for God, that God's companioning love is for him even when the world seems against him, that when he is thoroughly disturbed, the comforting love of God will come. All sounds wonderful and very comforting and very Christmassy, actually. It's what we focus on at Christmas, God with us, Emmanuel, the, the baby born in a stable in the midst of the muck and the dirt of ordinary, everyday, messy life. And there's a very decent sermon to be preached down that route in itself. But the more I read this passage, where we've got to, if you like, next in the Gospel of Matthew, the more that I realize that there's a whole sort of part of Christmas that usually we miss. And I reckon we do it for a couple of reasons. One is simply because Christmas is viewed as a time of comfort and good cheer. We don't really want to stir that up, do we? It's a time for, for children and for happiness and for singing, singing happy carols. But it's also because we tend to think of the Christmas story as the Christmas story. And when we pile into a particular gospel reading, we hear it in the context of the whole story we know. But I hope you've noticed that actually Matthew has one bit that he talks about. If you went to Luke, you'd find he has another bit. John has a completely different angle on the whole business, and Mark doesn't mention it at all. They have different angles on this same story. And Matthew's angle on Christmas is a far more disturbing one. It's a far more unsettling one. It's one that will stir us up. It's not the opposite of comfort, but it's the other side of the same coin. For as actually that saying goes on to say, just as much as Jesus comes to comfort the disturbed, he also comes to dis disturb the comfortable. And what we find in the reading that uh, John brought for us this morning is three comfortable people or groups of people. Three groups of people who were going through their lives uh, 
particularly, without a particular thought in the world that things were about to change. Three groups of people who actually thought, well, I know what tomorrow's going to bring. I know who I am. I know how life is shaped. I know what I'm meant to be doing. I know what I'm aiming for in life. I know where I'm going. And the presence of Jesus, this real Jesus that is revealed by Matthew, thoroughly disturbs them all. And for Joseph and for the Magi, their response to that disturbing presence of Jesus in their lives is to respond in faith and with love and with welcome, despite all the things that would have held them back. The response of Herod, well, the response of Herod is murderous rage. And if you like, what Matthew paints for us in these first couple of chapters then is two extremes of how we might respond to the disturbing presence of Jesus in our lives. Let's have a look at at, uh, Joseph to start with. We don't know a huge amount about Joseph. As far as we can tell, he was a carpenter. He'll have been a straightforward, ordinary man, not particularly well-educated. You didn't get to learn to read and write unless you were of a either a a real elite or you were learning uh, with your rabbi for a sort of life of religious instruction and to become a rabbi yourself, he wouldn't have had much call for it as a carpenter. He would have been much, much older than Mary. Uh, In those days, some 2,000 years ago in Israel-Palestine, as far as we can tell, uh, women got married at the age of 13 or 14. Men got married in their late 20s or early 30s. So here was somebody, Joseph, with a fairly stable life, Almost certainly his marriage will have been arranged with Mary's family many, many years before. This was simply the, the next step on a journey. It's not that they sort of met at a party six months before and, you know, uh, had a wonderful romantic, you know, a relationship and he proposed to her and now here's the wedding. This was just the next step on a journey that he'd known about for maybe a decade or more. He was a good man. He was somebody who would have been seen as a pillar of his community, somebody who was religious, somebody who was upstanding and and righteous and somebody who tried to live life well we know that from the way he responds to hearing that his wife mary is what wife to be mary is already pregnant and bear in mind this is 2000 years ago this is a very different culture from the culture of today this would have been a thing of deep and lasting and permanent shame on both their families to be pregnant out of wedlock as it would have been described to to be betrothed to somebody who was expecting a baby, whether it was yours or not, was a thing of massive shame. They would have been shunned widely. Rumors would have spread very quickly the moment she began to show. And so Joseph is left with this terrible dilemma. What does he do? Does he publicly shame her? Say, it's nothing to do with me. I've never been near her. Not my problem. Does he quietly divorce her? It's interesting. You had to, when you were engaged, you were effectively married. You had to divorce even those you'd been engaged to, even before the actual wedding. What would he do? And he's really, really afraid. It's actually a common thread through some of this story is this idea of fear. And I guess fear is the most obvious and most innate human response to the threat of change, isn't it? To being disturbed. If you're going through life quite happily, quite contentedly, and something massive changes... You suddenly lose your job when you weren't expecting it. There's a sudden health scare when you thought you were pretty fit and healthy. Some member of your family suddenly is in trouble. It's fear, isn't it? That's one of the big emotions that we respond with. The fear that we're not going to handle it. The fear that everything is going to be messed up. The fear that people will think worse of us. The fear that life is going to unravel. Joseph was right there. 
And we know that he was afraid because when the angel comes to speak to him, the first thing he says is, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, which literally means God to the rescue because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph will have been deeply afraid, deeply afraid of what others would think of him, deeply afraid of looking an idiot, an utter fool, deeply afraid of marrying somebody who was lying. I mean, Mary saying, I haven't slept with anybody. I'm a virgin. This, this baby has been revealed to me as, as God's. I, we have to get our heads around the fact that Joseph would no more have believed that than you or I would have done. You know, just because it was 2,000 years ago didn't mean they didn't know how babies get made. Actually, Joseph would have looked at her and thought, I loved you, or I was beginning to love you, or at least I've known you for the last 10 years and I was going to marry you. I certainly thought you were trustworthy. Our families have known each other for generations. What are you talking about? Do not be afraid, says the angel. She's telling the truth. However outrageous it might sound, however idiotic you might think you look, however fearful the future might be, this Jesus, God to the rescue, is God's gift of himself to humankind. Jesus disturbs the comfort of Joseph's life. But what he gives him in return is to suddenly find himself at the beating heart of the universe. Not some nobody carpenter in some backwater little village out the back end of Nazareth that nobody's ever heard of, but right at the heart of God's plan of saving the world that he's made, of giving his love to people like you and me. And so he responds in faith. He responds in belief. He responds with welcome. But it's not just Joseph who's disturbed. It's also the Magi. Since the Victorian era, they've been known as the three kings um, because of their kingly sort of gifts. But actually, they're never described as kings in the Bible. They're described as magi, and magi is one of these catch-all words from ancient times that, that really brought into it really anybody who had a sort of, was seen as having some sort of spiritual sight. They could be astrologers, they could be fortune tellers, they could be have a sort of prophetic insight. There were people who tried to look beyond themselves and see into the big picture of the world beyond. And in some cultures, and these uh, uh, magi come from a country uh, a long way away, in some cultures at the time, they were seen uh, with some honor. And you can see that in the, the gifts that they bring, this gold, this frankincense, and these, this myrrh. These aren't the ordinary stuff of sort of ordinary peasant folk. These are gifts for a king. In fact, they were gifts that you'd much more likely give in worship of a god within pagan religions. These magi were living lives of, we can only assume, relative comfort, relative stability. They knew what they did. They'd been brought up in the dark arts, as it were. Sorry, I suddenly had a flash to Harry Potter there, that's not what I meant. Um, they, were, they were brought up uh, reading the runes, reading the stars. Uh, actually, of all people, they were the most comfortable. And then they see something. They see something they weren't expecting. We don't know whether that was a particular conjunction of planets that shone brightly in the, star, in the sky like the stars. There, there's a lot of evidence um, that it, this could have been a few years before what we call BC, the conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. Could have been a comet, could have been something else. They see something that disturbs them. 
that disturbs them. And it disturbs them so much, they actually have to leave their country, pack up, travel across, as far as we can tell, deserts and through villages and towns, and in days before any mechanized transport of any description, to go to a place they've never heard of and they don't know, and to look for somebody that might not even be there. They could have stayed where they were. I would have done. Perhaps you would have done. That fear of being wrong, that fear of leaving behind what we know, that fear of looking a fool, that fear of giving up our comfort, Jesus disturbs it thoroughly. And they find themselves in Jerusalem. They find themselves going to the obvious place you're going to go if you're looking for a newborn king. They go to the palace. They assume it must be Herod's son. And then they're disturbed again because it turns out it's nothing to do with the current king who was 2,000 years ago a usurper to the uh, royal lineage that we've been reading about in Matthew 1. He was simply a puppet king on behalf of the Roman invaders. Deeply, deeply narcissistic, unpleasant megalomaniac, not just from uh, biblical scriptures that we find, but from writings of the day. They are disturbed. But by responding to the disturbing presence of Jesus, they get given an adventure that would change their lives an adventure that would turn their lives upside down, an adventure that would help them realize that at the heart of the universe wasn't some formless, nameless power, that at the heart of the universe wasn't simply the chance moving of stars in the heavens or of chickens' entrails or however it was in those days they'd have been trying to read the future, but at the heart of the universe was a beating heart of love for them and for all people, that God had come that God had come to rule, to be king, and to invite them, even them, from way outside God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel, to know him. Their fear of being wrong is usurped by the joy of adventure, by the joy of discovering this new king. But it's not just Joseph, not just the Magi, but it's also Herod who is disturbed. Disturbed, actually, in maybe more ways than one. He is deeply disturbed to find somebody somewhere is claiming his power. Because in the end, that's what this is all about. There's no thought that somehow this little baby is going to march upon the palace and take him over. And actually, if he'd really thought about it, he was there as the puppet king of the Romans. There was no way the Romans were going to allow somebody else to take over his seat, because in the end, that would have been a threat to the emperor, to Caesar itself. If he'd thought about it rationally, he shouldn't have been afraid. But of course, down through history, we've discovered that the more power somebody has, the more likely they are to become increasingly paranoid about holding on to that power. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, goes the old saying. Here is Herod, terrified of losing his grip on power, terrified that this Jesus will so disturb him as to ruin his life and what is rightfully, he feels, his. We discovered that he sends uh, the Magi off to Bethlehem and he says to them, oh, I would love to come and worship this new king with you. So just come by on your way home, come and let me know where he is, then I can go after you. Thankfully, the Magi are themselves warned by an angel to go home by a different route. And when he discovers he's been double-crossed, he flies into a terrible rage. And as Joseph and his family escape into Egypt, he enacts a terrible revenge 
on many of the families living in that time. There are some things about Christmas that are really disturbing. We discover, like Joseph, that life isn't meant to be simply one step after another, as if it's all mapped out for us, as if nobody really cares about us, as if our lives don't really matter. We can just do our best, get on with life, hopefully get to the end of our lives feeling we haven't made too many enemies, haven't mucked up too much, that our families are basically happy, that we've done an okay job. Joseph discovers that his life is actually meant to mean something, that his life is meant to serve the God who's made him and who loves him, that his life is actually meant to be right at the heart of God's purposes, not somewhere around the edge. That's really disturbing. But Joseph responds in faith. Joseph responds in such a way that he's able to enjoy the gift of this Jesus, the one come to save. And so too the Magi. They don't respond with a sense of fear at being wrong. They don't respond with a fear of being seen to be idiots, messing up, wanting to go back to their comfortable lives. They go on an adventure, maybe an adventure that took them two years, as far as we can tell. Herod kills all the children, all the, the little boys who are two years old. That maybe is the length of the time it took the Magi's to arrive at Jesus' side. That was a long journey over many, many uh, miles. But they respond to this gift in faith. And Herod? Well, Herod responds with defense, with fear, with anger. He doesn't want to be stirred up. He wants simply the comfort of being right, the comfort of being able to continue as he is, the comfort everything is okay. And he misses out. He holds on to his power, that's absolutely true. He carries on being king, that's absolutely true. He still has his riches and his palace and his servants and his future. But what he misses out on is the loving companionship of God. What he misses out on is the beating heart of this universe, which is a heart of love. What he misses out on is the gift of being able to serve others in love, not abuse others with power. I wonder what it is about my life and about your life and about Joshua's life as he grows up that Jesus might want to disturb. Not disturb out of aggression or disturb out of meanness, but disturb out of love. What is it in our lives that he will disturb and stir up? Because for our sake, for the sake of us knowing that our lives matter, that our lives are at the heart of God's love, that our lives are meant to mean something, that he will disturb for our sake and for the sake of those around us. What is it about your love, your life, that you'd feel most defensive about, that he might just poke and prod you with? What does the presence of Jesus in your life change and stir up? We're going to pause and be still for a moment before we come to sing and to worship. And just in the quietness, I want to lead us to reflect on Christmas from that point of view. There are some of us here today who simply need the comfort that Jesus brings. He comes to comfort the disturbed. If you're going through a life at the moment that feels thoroughly disturbed, that feels all ends up, Know that Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, comes to be with you, to bring comfort, to bring love, to bring hope and companionship. But if you're in a place today of relative comfort and stability and sameness, dare to believe that the love of God is so passionately for you, 
that God knows you so thoroughly from the inside out that you can actually invite with open arms and open hearts him to disturb your comfort, to stir you up, and to lead you to respond to him. Jesus, come, we pray, with your comfort and your disturbance. Remind us of your love for us. Help us to respond in kind, even as Joseph and the Magi's responded in kind. Amen.